Hey there, you're listening to the Sunshine Speechy Podcast. I'm your host, Nancy, bringing you all the information you need to know about getting into SLP graduate school and becoming a successful SLP. Join me every other Wednesday as I talk to SLP experts about current research and methods in the field, as well as undergraduate and graduate students and everyday SLPs just like you and I. If you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure to subscribe and leave a positive review to help others find my podcast. Make sure you don't miss out on additional resources and more by following me on Instagram at Sunshine Speechy. In addition, check out my YouTube channel, where I share even more advice about the graduate school application process, as well as my own experience in graduate school. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Sunshine Speechy Podcast. I'm your host, Nancy, and today I am joined by author Lindsay Rowe Parker. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yes. So just to start out, can you tell us a little about yourself? Sure. So I am an author of um, a sensory differences story. It's called Wiggle Stomps and Squeezes, Calm My Jitters Down. Um, And I'm also the mom of two neurodivergent children. And I have a bonus teen. Uh, My stepdaughter is also neurodivergent. And I myself just found out within the last couple of years that I'm neurodivergent. So my whole life is kind of centering around this this neurodivergence type of, um, you know, experience, which has been fun to get to know myself that way. And it helps me then understand the needs of my kids as well. So kind of along that line, what inspired you to write Wiggle Stomps and Squeezes Call My Jitters Down? <laughs> it is a mouthful. It's a long it name. <laughs> um, so my daughter was diagnosed as autistic uh, when she was around two. And, you know, we did the, the things that all, you know, parents do when they first get a diagnosis, they try and learn as much as they can. And they dive into, you know, all the different things to try and help their child. Um, And one of those things, I wouldn't say that all the things that we tried were helpful. Um, Some of them I have chosen not to, um, you know, not to continue for us as a family. Um, but the one, one of the things that I did find really helpful was occupational therapy. And during that experience, um, you know, occupational therapy with a two, three, four-year-old is very, um, hands-on. Um, so I was a big part of her therapies and it kind of, I like to say that it introduced me into a world that I didn't know that I was already in. Um, because having undiagnosed sensory issues myself as a kid, it just kind of brought back a lot of, um, memories and feelings and having that understanding of, you know, our, not only our five senses, but the other three that we have, um, kind of opened my eyes and I was like, oh, wow. Okay. This makes so much more sense. And it was, um, you know, it was a lot, it, it helped me better understand my daughter, Um, And then also my son, as he got a little older and also had sensory issues, Um, but also myself, you know, it helped me get a a better understanding of some of the things that were challenging for me growing up and still are. And, um, you know, how to get that, that input that our bodies are looking for um, in order to regulate. 
Yeah. So what are the other three senses? Um, so we know the five senses, which are, you know, smell, sight, hear, um, taste, and touch. But then there are three others, um, which are proprioception, um, which is your body in space. Um, then you have vestibular, which is if you think about um, the feeling you get when you're on a swing, you know, that kind of movement. Um, and then also interoception, and that can be anything, um, any of the feelings from inside your body. So that's hunger or needing to use the restroom or things like that. Um, you know, the senses that come from inside your body. Okay. Yes. I've definitely heard a lot about proprioception being in the SLP field because a lot of times not having that proprioception or needing more kind of feedback can be an obstacle that you have to overcome in therapy. Whereas like, of like, what chair do we need to be putting them in? What sort of sensory aids do they need to find that proprioception? So that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And these are things that I had no idea about at all, you know, and it was, um, was really our occupational therapist that kind of helped me name these and then helped me also, um, you know, identify them as we were going through them and feeling them. How and when did you know your daughter might be autistic? And how did the diagnosis of autism, as well as your own of ADHD, impact your writing of the book? So I could tell that she was, she had some learning delays, um, right around 18 months to two years. Um, so we started the, you know, the process of, um, going through assessments and things like that. And, um, you know, I don't think the rest of my family saw it at first. And, you know, it was kind of like, you know, no, she's not, don't say anything, don't get her diagnosed, don't label her. And um, I understand that that comes from a place of, you know, caring and, and really fear. Um, but that's not the direction that I wanted to, to go with her. Um, I wanted her to have all of the supports that she needed to be successful in life, whatever that looks like for her, um, and to be able to have access to those supports. And so, um, you know, right now, uh, the only way that she could have those things is if she had the diagnosis. So we did, um, you know, seek that out. I actually didn't have my diagnosis of ADHD as a child um, because again, my parents didn't want to label me. They didn't want to, um, you know, they, they were afraid really is what I believe. Um, and when, you know, from my perspective, when you, don't give a child a diagnosis when they need it. Um, you know, they're for fear of the label, they're still going to get labeled in other ways. Um, and sometimes those things are, you know, I was called lazy and unmotivated and distracted and a dreamer and all those things where you kind of internalize that. And you're like, okay, these things are wrong with me. When in fact, there's nothing wrong with you. Your brain just works differently. Um, and I feel like, you know, giving kids the opportunity to know that their brain works differently, um, you know, take some of that stigma out of it, take some of the shame out of it for thinking that they just can't. Um, and it's not their fault. You know, there's nothing wrong with them. They're just, their brain works differently than other people's. And I think that's, it's almost a gift to give somebody that. 
Yeah. So how did, this isn't a question on there, but how did you get your diagnosis of ADHD? So I unfortunately got into a car accident um, and I had some head trauma. Um, And after that, I really was basically overwhelmed and overloaded. Um, And I couldn't understand what was happening to me. I had always been able to to cope with everything. Um, And this was only about two years ago now. And so I went in for neuropsychological testing to see like, you know, did I damage my brain? Do I have um, a traumatic brain injury? And after going through all of the testing, um, you know, it came out that I had um, anxiety and depression, PTSD, and then ADHD. And I was like, what? (laughs) That is not what I was expecting. Um, And so, you know, I was treated for the PTSD and the anxiety and depression, um, which thank goodness, um, you know, modern medicine is works miracles and I appreciate it. Um, And so then the ADHD, I told my family, I told my parents and I was like, you know, I wasn't expecting this, but you know, I got diagnosis with ADHD and they were like, oh yeah, we knew that. And I was like, wait, what? They're like, oh yeah, we knew, we knew, we just, you know, this is where they told me they didn't want me to have a label. And, um, you know, it was, and I'm almost 40 now. So not knowing that you, you know, (laughs) have a different brain until you're almost 40, it was kind of like, you know, yeah, it probably would have been helpful for me to know at times. And, you know, I did, I did fine in life and I didn't have any additional supports or accommodations, but I think I probably internalized a lot of things that didn't need to be internalized. Yeah. It would have been helpful to have that external validation or explanation for why you like were experiencing things differently. (laughs) So as a former preschool teacher, how does your book show the different ways in which the different senses are interpreted by someone with sensory differences? I think kids love, obviously they love to wiggle, right? They love to wiggle. They love to stomp. They love big squeezes and hugs. They love to play in the sand. And I'm not saying all kids, obviously, but a majority of kids like to touch things and like to move. And whether they like all those sensations or only some of them, but I feel like senses and sensations, at least for me as a sensory seeking person, it, it enriches my world. And I have absolutely... You know, I've loved experiencing that with my daughter um, and, you know, being a preschool teacher and watching kids and squiggling around and, and it makes so much more sense to me now that I have this information that would have been, you know, it would have been when I was a, a preschool teacher, watching my kids and seeing how they interacted with things and seeing how they, you know, either were seeking or they were avoiding different sensations. And, you know, I probably could have been you know, better able to support them at the time if I had that information. Um, And so hopefully this book, um, you know, will help caregivers 
um, and teachers and parents and, you know, whoever picks up the book and, and spends a little time with it with their kids will kind of get a firsthand look at what can happen with sensory issues and then also have a little bit of empathy, um, you know, for when you see somebody that is struggling because, you know, a lot of times um, ADHD and sensory issues and autism, um, those are invisible things for the most part for some people. And having, you know, a child that is having, you know, a sensory overload, sometimes we can snap to judgment on those kids and, you know, giving them a little bit of grace and a little bit of room to, to just experience that, um, I think would be better for all of us. What are some challenges that people face when trying to get help for ADHD and autism? I think some of the challenges we face is is stigma, number one, um, and fear. I think a lot of the mainstream narrative of, you know, neurodiversity um, and autism and, you know, things that that are considered disorders um, is, is, has a negative, negative framework really of, of the story and the narrative that we are shared. Um, and it doesn't have to be that way. And I'm not saying that, you know, it's all sugar coated and, you know, fairies and butterflies and things. There's a lot of very hard things that come, um, you know, it, with some people's challenges, but I think the trend toward looking at neurodiversity is more of a, um, you know, a difference in how the brain works take some of that stigma away. Um, It doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be a negative. I think when we put supports in place and help, you know, accommodate people um, with their disabilities, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be as hard as it is. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that's something we see a lot as speech pathologists is when parents do get that diagnosis of autism. There's a lot of, you know, rejecting the idea and being in denial. And, you know, you know, there is a lot of misinformation out there about what the limitations will be for their child in the future mm-hmm. and kind of navigating, you know, what their child will be capable of is difficult. And I think sometimes different for medical professionals or healthcare professionals can kind of spread misinformation and that just adds to the growing fear. So I definitely feel that. Yeah. How did you find your illustrator, Rebecca Burgess, who is an autistic illustrator? So one of the very most important things that I did right when I started this journey um, when I found out my daughter was autistic was start to listen to autistic adults. Um, and I think it's kind of funny looking back now, cause I was like, I didn't even think about the adult life experience of an autistic person because you hear so much about, you know, the, the kids with autism, you don't think that those kids actually turn into adults. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I recommend to every, you know, parent that I come across that is starting this kind of journey or is even already in it is to, you know, seek out autistic adult voices, um, because I've learned so, so much from them just, 
um, as a community in general. And you have to unlearn a lot of stuff that you thought you knew. Um, and you have to be kind of open and willing to listen and kind of just take a seat and, and really just listen and be able to absorb what they're sharing. Um, but one of the things, um, you know, that really stood out to me was that in order for me to give life to this character, um, the, the illustrator really needed to have experience with, um, sensory differences and Rebecca, um, is an autistic illustrator out of the UK. I went searching on Twitter um, for them and <clears throat> I was looking for anybody that had experience with you know, sensory differences or autism. And when I say experience with, I mean a personal life experience. Um, and I found Rebecca, um, I sent them the manuscript and they were like, yes, I wanna do it. And it's like, whoa. <laughs> perfect. Um, this is awesome. And really from there, I just gave them kind of carte blanche with it. Um, there were like a couple things here and there. Like I asked if we could make sure to have a dog in it, but other than that, like they completely ran with it and brought the characters to life. And I think the first time I saw the character sketches, I just cried because they were like happy cry because they were so there's so much joy in their illustrations and just it would not have been the same book without Rebecca are you an SLP grad student already stressing over how you'll balance studying for the praxis while managing practicum responsibilities and coursework Reading through all your notes and sifting through Praxis prep books for good questions can be so time-consuming. Well, now there's a better option. TrueLearn SmartBank offers over 800 SLP Praxis practice questions, high-quality explanations, and a performance dashboard providing insight into your testing strengths and weaknesses. Visit TrueLearn.com and use code PRAXISPREP at checkout for exclusive discounts toward your Smart Bank subscription. You can even start studying now with TrueLearn's five-day free trial. Let's get back to the episode. That I think I've seen a couple different books out there that have been talking about people with, you know, neurodiversity, and then it's been written by someone who has no experience, which can oftentimes just be spreading kind of misinformation or it can be, you know, either painting it in a negative light or a, an uber positive light. So I really love that you had that representation. Thank you. And we, you know, I am neurodivergent, but I am not autistic. So when we were doing this process, I made sure to send it out to, before we went to print, send it out to a few different, um, you know, autistic advocates that I really, I really admire and to make sure that we were on the right track. I mean, obviously Rebecca had a hand in a lot of it, um, but, you know, trying to make sure there weren't blind spots um, for us as we, as we kind of went down that path was really important. Um, because we never specifically say in the book that the character is autistic, but it is an autistic character. 
Yeah, I feel like even just having my podcast, I've kind of like realized sometimes when I've had a blind spot and I've thought like, oh no, I definitely should have done more research on this or I should have talked to someone who like had experience with this. So that's awesome. So why did you decide not to name the characters in your book? I don't think the name is important. Um, I think, you know, it could have been, it could have been anything. It could have been, it could have been Nancy. It could have been Lindsay. It could have been, you know, Johnny, whoever. But I, I, I like the fact that when a kid steps into that book, it can be them, you know, and um, you can't quite tell if it's a boy or a girl. It is, it is, um, we drew it as a girl, um, but you can't quite tell. And um there's no name because I want kids to just, it's just a kid, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a boy or a girl, it can be, it can be you, you know? Um, and so being able to kind of put yourself right into the story and it's, you know, told from first person perspective and, and even though it's, it's told from first person, even though the child doesn't ever speak. Um, Cause that was another important thing um, to me is that they were a non-speaking child um, because non-speaking kids still communicate. Um, they, you know, they still have all the same feelings and all the same experiences. And, and I feel like they definitely deserve to, to have a spotlight in this book. Absolutely. So how can adults with autism, ADHD, or other sensory disorders benefit from reading Wiggles, Stomps, and Squeezes? I think kids' books can kind of transport you back to being a kid. Um, Of course, I would love it if they read it to a kid in their life. But at the same time, I feel like when you find a, a kid's book that really connects with your experience as a kid, it kind of makes you feel seen. You know, I think part of this was a little bit therapeutic for me too, in writing it. Um, You know, the characters don't, don't necessarily look like me. They're not me. They're not my daughter, but it was a therapeutic experience to write through this. Um, And I think it was for Rebecca as well to illustrate it is to kind of feel seen and feel validated um, and say, Hey, you know, you're, you're not alone. There's a lot of other people that experience this. There's nothing wrong with you. Um, and kind of walk through this story with me. Yeah, absolutely. That's why representation is so important so that people can feel seen. Yeah. So what do you want parents and kids to learn after reading Wiggle Stomps and Squeezes Call My Jitters Down? I think the first thing would be to to be seen. Um, and then the second thing, if they don't necessarily connect with it, I think most people will, cause everybody's been a kid. Um, but if they don't necessarily connect with it personally, I hope it gives them a little bit of insight. And again, a little bit of grace, um, you know, when they, they may encounter that out in their life, in the world and just give those people a little bit of space, a little bit of grace and understanding. Yeah. And then most important question of all, where can people buy your book? <laughs> um, 
So it is available basically anywhere online that books are sold. So like, you know, Walmart and Books A Million and Target and all those kinds of places. It's not in a whole um, lot of stores in store, Um, but online you can find it. And of course, Amazon, you can also, and I think this part's pretty important. You can also order it from your local bookstore because it is distributed, um, you know, by the the normal big distributors that you can go into your local bookstore if that's something that you want to support and order it through them. Awesome. Well, hopefully all of you guys listening will go out there, get this book and read it to your kids in therapy so that you can either talk to them about their sensory issues or help them gain empathy for their peers. Thanks again for tuning into this week's episode of the Sunshine Speechy Podcast.